I'd like to direct this question to Messrs. Lennon and uh, McCartney. In uh, a recent article, Time Magazine put down pop music, and they referred to uh, Day Tripper as being about a prostitute, oh, yeah. and Norwegian Wood about as being about a lesbian. Oh, yeah. Now, I just wanted to know what what your intent was when you wrote it, and what sh what your feeling is about the Time Magazine criticism of the music that is being written today. Well, you're just trying to write songs about prostitutes and lesbians, that's all. <laughs> I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Tarras. I'm Candy Leonard. The Beatles. Naked.
guess nobody ever really done me Ooh, she done me She done me good I've got a feeling That keeps me on my toes Oh yeah Beatles, sex in song. This is a really sort of wide subject that has never really been covered, I don't think, in sufficient depth because it's twofold. We're talking about how the actual subject of sex was approached by the Beatles, you know, starting off in the era of the early 60s where it's all basically hints and maybe some insinuation. It's all pretty much coded. And then as the decade progresses... 
they get more and more overt until at some point, really, there's nothing much left to the imagination. Parallel with that, we've also got the subject of the Beatles' attitudes towards sex and towards women, you know, the misogyny as such, and how in some cases that was reversed within a few short years as well. So we want to discuss this subject and we didn't think it would be right just to have two guys talking about it. So we've got with us Candy Leonard, the author of Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World. Candy's got a doctoral in sociology. She grew up a Beatles fan. She's a first-gen fan. So welcome to the show, Candy. And can you tell us a bit about your background as a Beatles fan and how you came to write the book? Well, yes, I grew up as a Beatles fan. I was seven and a half years old when I watched The Ed Sullivan Show, and I was very young. But I think because of my particular... My parents, that just the time and place, Queens, New York. Um, I, I don't know. I just I was I had the feeling that some that I was witnessing something extraordinary because suddenly everybody was focused on the Beatles. You know, it wasn't just you know my brother and I and our friends and the kids in the neighborhood. It was you know parents, teachers, Walter Cronkite. It's like they, they just suddenly everybody stopped what they were doing and were, was paying attention to the Beatles. And I just, you know, had what even then, what I call my sociological imagination. And I was observing and participating in this thing. And uh, I guess some, you know, probably by the time I was in college, I knew I was going to write about them. I didn't know exactly how. And, you know, it's really funny because the first time I ever thought really about uh, writing about them was in the early 80s um, when I and I the thing I wanted to look at was the lyrics because I'm I've always been focused on lyrics and uh, their meaning and and just the words and it struck me this would have been the early 80s that that their lyrics were always different than their contemporaries that there were more there was more egalitarian their use of the word friend which is like a signature Lennon McCartney thing referring to women as friends and so there was this sense of certainly compared to their contemporaries their lyrics were uh, I don't want to enlightened, more more egalitarian, let's say, uh, less sexist, or it might be a sim another way of putting it. Anyway, why I wanted to write Beatleness was because, um, again, like I knew that I had witnessed something extraordinary, and I believed, having lived through it and having been impacted, and knowing that I was impacted by it, and meeting people throughout my life. You know, you'd get into a conversation, you'd meet somebody at a party and you'd get into a conversation. It's almost like a secret handshake, you know, like you would know that this person is like a Beatle fan in the way that you are. And right. so I thought, OK, uh, there's a lot of us out there and wanted and that nobody had ever looked at the fan experience like this was a calling <laughs> you know um to to look at that experience to document what it was like to grow up with them as a constant presence in your life and how that affected our consciousness our just our world view i mean of, and of course our appreciation of music and and you know opened they opened our ears and all that but it was an experience that millions and millions of people went through that i felt had to be documented and so that's what i did right. and you know the other thing was that you know people 
for years we hear, oh, the Beatles changed everything, the Beatles changed everything. And I really wanted to look at that. Well, what, does, what do we mean by everything, first of all? And if they did change everything, how did they do it? And in sociology, I mean, it was really funny because when I was in graduate school, I would, I, one of my things I was studying was social change and movements and generations and things like this. And it just became really clear to me Again, I mean, the Beatles were always in the back of my mind, and so this notion of changed everything, and and I realized that um, the the way that they changed everything was by changing each of us in various ways, but that there was there was um, sociological theory to be applied to this. It just became very obvious to me, and it was very exciting. And I think it was at that point that the the earliest seeds of my book. Um, were planted in, in my head, but but it was because it was a, you know like the the uh, you know the individual fan accounts of course you know are important and have value, but in terms of their impact, their global impact, um, I think that you know the the sociological perspective I, you know was required. I mean I. <laughs> You know, it was my belief always that they changed everything, and I basically wanted to prove it. <laughs> One thing that I'm pretty sure from talking to lots of other young women who were older than me at the time is that there was a sexual awakening that came with the Beatles. Now, maybe it would have happened and it would have been Bobby Rydell that had inspired them. However, today we're talking about sexuality in, in Beatles music, implied or otherwise, or imp interpreted. Do you think... As we embark upon this checklist of songs where we go, okay, this is happening, that's happening, in your research for Beatleness, did you come across stories where women said, oh yeah, I mean, once I heard Please Please Me, because I know Richard in the intro was talking about, you know, as the decade went on, things got a little bit more explicit. Well, out of the gate, really, their first number one, there's not a whole lot left to the imagination with that one. So uh, did that some did that come up? Did did, a, did were women hearing the lyrics? Women of uh, you know pubescent women uh, hearing it differently than the guys were. Yes, but I'm not sure what it was a question of you know hearing innuendo so much as it was more of a sort of gestalt impression of you know, the lyrics made them sound kinder and gentler, right? They weren't macho. There was something sweeter about them, right? So in terms of, you know, uh, sexual innuendo, you know, we didn't, uh, nobody, I can't recall anybody actually mentioning in terms of innuendo. Now, uh, one of the songs on our list, which we'll get to, is, is Norwegian Wood, which is a really interesting case in point because it shows how, fans of different ages heard these things differently. Again, when we're talking about this millions and millions of baby boomers around the world, um, this spans a 15, 18 year age range depending on how you define baby boomers. So when I was hearing, again, let's just use an example for the moment of Norwegian Wood, at age uh, nine or 10, I heard something very different than teenagers and I had or people who were at that point in their early 20s and I have that in the book which you know we can get into later so um, I think that in general women related to the whole phenomenon differently than men did you know did they hear sexual content I I'm not sure I would put it that way exactly no yeah because like please please me right is 
an expression of frustration. You know, the command, command, right. command. And it builds right. as well. There's always that kind of, you know, even in these early songs, whether it's Please Please Me or I Want to Hold Your Hand, the actual, the vocal delivery, the music behind it, there's this kind of building excitement. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a sexual tension to it. Yeah. Would you say, as a sociologist, that that is something that people picked up on on a conscious level in that era, or would it have been more subconscious? I would say, I mean, you know, why are we drawn to music? It does something. It, it, it you know, I would say it was more subconscious, mm. it, you know, in terms of that. I mean, I, I think that, you know, why are we drawn to music? Because it, 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 it stimulates our imagination. It, 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 it's, there's something exciting about it. And of course, the, the words and the, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because Please Please Me is often used as an example. Um, and it, it's interesting because if you th really listen to the words and just, you know, for a moment, like, forget about, you know, what it supposedly is saying and all that, just listen to the words, it's really talking about reciprocity because he's saying, um, as I please you. Yeah. Right? But it doesn't yeah. leave a lot to the imagination. I mean, pleased you how? I mean, I'm so surprised. Well, exactly. But, but here's the thing. If the song is, is basically a request for oral sex, which is according to, to uh, McDonald and others, you know, that's, that's the story. Well, are we to assume that then that these guys were, you know, offering this to the woman in the story and that she was not? It raises some interesting points because statistically speaking, we know that that's not how that works, right? So it's kind of interesting. Well, Maybe statistically, but he, John Lennon comes right and says, like I pleased you, like, come on, you know? Right, so, so right. I think in a sense, yeah. why this song, their first number one, to me is the most overt of the entire canon, and yet, and huh. yet the stodgy BBC either were asleep at the switch or maybe they'd never heard of oral sex. So, um, you know, they just, how that one snuck by and they would have problems with other records later on and stuff kind of it amazes me that they came out of the gate pretty sexually aggressive if you will i mean it doesn't leave a lot to the imagination i don't know it it seems you know it's very easy to read things into it it's a song it it's certainly it's pleading it's it's it has a certain frenetic quality to it it's very high energy come on come on come on yeah um but as far as, like, didn't they hear it? Why didn't they ban it? I mean, I just don't think that it's necessarily that. There are many interpretations. Last night I said these words to
obviously we're only getting the guy's perspective in the song. We're not hearing if the woman felt that she'd been pleased. But just the notion in that era of these northern chauvinists, basically, even raising the idea of pleasing the woman, I suppose. Exactly. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. In other words, so we have to kind of zoom out here for a moment and take the conventional interpretation into account, but but look a little closer. I mean, the the thing about... um, you know, this notion of reciprocity in relationships is something that you hear a lot in the Beatles. And again, more so than their contemporaries. There's a sense of um, a basic fairness. Who, who are you and comparing them to when you say that they're more fair than their contemporaries? Which contemporaries are you talking about? Well, I mean, of course, the Stones come to mind, you know. Um, but if you think of these songs, each one as a sort of a vignette of a relationship, okay? Yeah. Um, the relationships, uh, as, they def- as they defined it, with their authority, their maleness, all that stuff, okay, um, they were, there was a morality to it that was kind of, that's, spoke to fairness and um, and it was also there was a there was an intellectual there was a kind of a a moral reasoning to it you know and you hear this a lot I mean it, it comes up here and there and so I think that please please me I mean you could say is really an early example of that now what about you say straight out the gate you know Eric with please please me there's also I saw a standing there which as we know you know Oh, was it the original line was just 17, never, never been, been a beauty, beauty queen. queen. Uh, um, and, and Lennon came up with, you know what I mean, which is a real sideways glance. Well, right? it it's, is. It's... And, and also the, the euphemism of uh, dance, which was f- mm-hmm. familiar in rock and roll. I mean, as late as Bruce Springsteen uh, in Meeting Across the River, these guys don't dance. These guys don't fuck around. You know, um, it's, right. so, so right. it's, it, but, you didn't have to but, be. But do you think you know what I mean is... Alluding to the fact that she, what she's jail bait. I mean, no, she's not jail bait. No, she's, she's now be- she's now legal. She's virginal. She's a virgin. You know, she's yeah. young, beautiful, and virginal. She's ripe for the plucking. Exactly. There's not much rep- reciprocity. <laughs> That's tough for a dyslexic. Right. It's- right. Well, the other thing with uh, in terms of how you know um, women girls hear these songs differently. The other thing there, and this is. Uh, not only Beatles or not only pop music, but media in general, this emphasis on the appearance, okay? So the way she looked was way beyond compare. That's really important. And so you're going to get noticed, you know, you're just standing there, but you're going to get noticed if you're beautiful, if you look right. Yeah. And that was a really important um, message that, was, you know, permeates all of this. Okay, so that's the misogyny element, isn't it? What do you mean? Well, it's how she looks, you know. It wasn't anything about a conversation they had. She was just... Well, I wouldn't call that misogynist. <laughs> I mean, necessarily. It's, in other, you know, like who, everybody, you know... Yeah, I you mean, got a physical you, attraction. You, yeah, I get it, you know, but... but Right, but here's where here's where it does become misogynist because... Well, again, I'm not sure that's even the word I would use, but, um, you know, the the pressure for women to look good is, you know, very, (laughs) you know, clearly, and this is something that, um, you know, little girls learn this very early on, that um, there there are, it's really, really important to be, to look good, because you, you know, a guy is going to notice you, and, you know, that's, that's a really important thing, and so, 
being identified or recognized as being beautiful or pretty or cute or whatever it is, is really important. Well, I think it's, you know, there I will, I will say it is, believe me, every teenage boy especially feels, you know, you've got to look good as well. That pressure is not gender exclusive. I, I think uh, in, the, in the words of, in, in the words of uh, Fernando Lamas, it is better to look good than to feel good. <laughs> well, ideally, one would look good and feel good. But this, you know, again, thinking about this as, you know, like, you know, like what I learned from the Beatles, you know, or what I learned from pop music, what I learned from my culture is that as a female person, I better look good or else like all those, you know, I'm not going to get the goodies of the world. Like I'm not going to have male attention i'm not you know like it was it was it was a very heavy message and remains so one two three five when you were saying about them being kind of more equitable, more fair um, in terms of how they're approaching the subject of a relationship with the woman, she loves you. 
right? Where one guy is basically telling another that he needs to do the right thing.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I-, I love the fact that I've mentioned this before in other shows that Lennon, when he delivers the line, there's a sort of sarcasm in the voice, which I take to mean like saying to another guy, you're going to have to eat your pride here, you know, and, and、mm. do the right thing by her、um, because she loves you. Right. Well, it's interesting because when you mentioned that it was sarcastic, and I'm thinking, like, you know, and, and I listened to it, and it never struck me as sarcastic. I mean, I saw what you were getting at. It didn't strike me as sarcastic. Then I thought, well, let's go to the arbiter of such things. So I looked it up in McDonald, and he describes it as a cajoling emphasis. You know, you should be glad. Again, who knows? It never struck me as sarcastic because, again, within the、uh, story that's being told in that song, the, li- the suggestion of apologizing is consistent with the rest of the lyric. In other、mm. words, you should apologize. And so, yeah, it, it, he kind of stretches it out also to, meet the, the, to fit on the music. But、um, I'm not sure it's sarcastic. I think that song is, is sincere. I mean, I, I think it's.、Um, I mean, it's probably the best. Somebody once described it,、uh, when somebody I spoke to, as you know, p- pure joy on a piece of plastic. And you know, I think that's true.、Um, you know, and it's, it's really like saying, it, it's like, go out and get her. You know, it's like, hey, this woman loves you. And, and again, this is a, something that they did from the get go, which is to elevate love. As a state of being. So when he says, and you know that can't be bad, you know, th- they're already、um, you know, making that point that you know, love is to be celebrated and it's a good thing and all this. I don't know. To me, that song has, I don't hear any what we're calling misogyny. Well, in that I, song I also all, don't、really. hear any sarcasm. Where Richard hears sarcasm in the vocal inflection, I actually hear maybe more like a patronization. No, apologize. You know, yeah, just like, yeah. Come on, it's like, go just, ahead and yeah, do just, it. Just get it done、yeah. with. Yeah, so you gotta, you gotta you know, swallow your pride type of thing. So, but、uh, we can't、right. talk about She Loves You without one of the most underrated B sides in the history of the Beatles, and also one of the strange.、Uh, I'll get you always got me as a sort of.、Mm-hmm. Think of the opening line Imagine I'm in love with you. You know, you, this is the first use of Imagine, which will li- come back later, obviously, as one of the signature tunes of Lennon. But、uh, as long as we're talking about sex here, guys, if that isn't、uh, something to do with、uh, being a backdoor man, as,、uh, as the blues guys would have said,、uh, there isn't one in the Beatles canon.、Uh, I, as I got older, I'll get you in the end, jumped out at me as one of those fish and finger pie type. Beatles sly, can we slip this one by? I don't know. I I I think you're. I I I, I don't agree. <laughs> Poor kid. I never heard that. I mean, I am very you know, serious. You can find that anywhere. You know, as it's like people. You know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yes, you can hear that if you want to hear it. I think your therapist needs to hear that, Eric. <laughs> right. Yes, I will. I'll get you in the end. Oh yeah.
I think that, you know, a preface to all of this really should be, why are we looking at this? Okay, therefore what? Because, you know, we can be looking at it to see how, and I think this is one of the things we are looking at, is how the standards changes, you know, the words that became more explicit over time, you know, how the, what was, what you could get away with on record in terms of lyrics advanced. Okay. Yes. So there's that. And, but the, the important thing I think, I mean, from my perspective is how did it impact the listener? Like the therefore what of this is what did we hear then and now and, and what is the impact of this or was there an impact of it? Yeah, that kind of brings me to I Want to Hold Your Hand, which I mentioned before about the sexual excitement in the music. You've got these pretty, you know, innocent lyrics, but the excitement, the build, the tension, as you said. And obviously they were doing this for excitement in the song. I'm wondering how conscious they were of actually trying to stoke up, you know, the, the girls in the audience. Well, we know that they chose their, you know, to use, you know, general pronouns rather than names. I mean, you know, they were, I think they were aware of the impact of this, you know, the energy of the song. I mean, they must have been because they, you know, as as music fans themselves, they knew how they felt when they heard Elvis or the Everly Brothers or the girl group. So we know that they were aware of that um, effervescence, whatever you want to call it, that that a song can, can engender. So... Yeah, I mean, I want to hold your hand was, I mean, that was kind of their calling card, at least in the States, you know. And so this is a song about, again, it celebrates love. It's a, it's a, it's a happy in love kind of song, you know. It's about the beginning of a relationship. And it has this kind of <sighs> excitement and, and uh, energy around it that's just uh, incredible. Yeah, you see, I I think also that excitement for them wasn't always about the sexual side of things because, for instance, Long Tall Sally, which obviously they didn't write, it was Little Richard, but, you know, Little Richard's vocal is sort of full of sexuality in there, whereas I feel that Paul's vocal, as fantastic as it is, it's more about just all-out rock. It's not really laced with you know, sexuality to me. Yeah, but Little Richard could read the the New York City phone book and it was, you know, in those <laughs> days and it would have been sexually charged. So I, I, I think all of these things are a bit of a Rorschach test to me. It's like where the listener is at. And, and one of the interesting things in very few, with very few exceptions about Beatles music to me is it always leaves that open for interpretation, except in yeah, very but, few but cases. But you, you know what I'm saying is that as performers on stage, right, they weren't about moves like Elvis and stuff. You know, they just delivered the music. And I think that in terms of when they recorded it as well and when they performed it, again, I don't think they were consciously trying to be sexual like an, like Elvis would have been. They were just focused on the music in terms of delivering something that was just exciting. Right. I agree. I don't think they ever tried to be sexual per se. No. Ever. I, but yeah. isn't, but didn't they pr- almost promote before anybody else, if you're familiar with a film called Bedazzled uh, yes. and Peter Cook's, you know, kind of prototype of Brian Ferry where he just, you know, I can't be bothered. Don't you ever leave off. They had a little bit of that. In other words, they knew they were so in command as this unit that they didn't have to gyrate because they had four guys that were just so unbelievably cool and they knew that the if the women were so interested in them they were you know throwing things up on the stage 
they didn't have to right. they well, didn't have to do it you know what i mean i agree that's right well they i mean that's part of what they did was they changed that paradigm in other words women found and girls found them appealing partly because they didn't do that and it made them uh more real more approachable and 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 authentic does the word aloof women uh, in that time period if you i mean you would know better than richard or i was something about the aloofness and then the possible double entendre of the lyrics did that kind of create an excitement uh, uh, you know with young american girls especially i think aloofness is not part of this at all i don't i, I agree know. Be- because if they it was all about uh it was all about entry and connecting and uh you know, resonating together. They're the boys next door, I would say, rather than aloof. Exactly. There was there was never a, no aloofness at all. Do you really think they were the boys next door, Richard? I mean, they were they were aliens from another planet to Americans. I don't know. I can't. Yes, but they weren't threatening. You know, they weren't. It, it was like I, I'm, one quote that keeps coming to mind that I have in Beatleness, um, which. I think, you know, this woman talked about how they weren't like the football players. They weren't macho. They weren't, um, you know, there was some, there was an authenticity about them. And, and, you know, and later on, you know, we get into more sort of sophisticated lyrics and stuff. It's like they were intelligent. Like, this is how intelligent young men think about women. Right. In other words, it wasn't Moon June Spoon. Yeah. It was like substantive lyrics that really, if you think about it, what they were doing, they were showing you the dynamics of a relationship. Sometimes it worked out. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes she dumped me. Sometimes I dumped her. But always they were showing us the you know how intelligent men think about women i mean i just keep coming back to that but they they i wouldn't say that they're aloof in, in any way no i mean you know when i say boys next door eric it's like you know elvis is not the guy next door he's he's like a god right he's almost untouchable whereas the beatles they always punctured that when it was you know so when they were performing at shea stadium and you know, they are like gods on stage from the perspective of the audience, but they're constantly puncturing that. They're taking the piss out of it. And also, aloof to me implies, um, you know, a kind of distance. They smiled at you. They trusted you. I mean, I can remember, and this is probably, I was probably eight years old, um, you know, we were buying Beatle cards, and it was the first time I noticed, and I, I can even remember, I have a very vivid memory of us trying to, like, name them. That's how early on it was. It, it might have been, like, March of 64, right, or whenever the Beatle cards appeared. And um, I remember noticing in the photographs, first time I ever noticed this, that when a f- the subject of the photo looks straight ahead, the eyes follow you. And I remember noticing this, and, and I think part of why, you know, it, it, like they were accessible. They were there for you. There was this communication that happened. And it was very powerful, and that was, I think, part of the appeal, was that uh, we were all together in this. You know, like, they were singing to us, for us, and, yeah, they were just right there. All I've got to do. Oh well, yeah. Um, that one again. It it because it picks up this theme of the reciprocity. Okay, he's basically laying out the rules or the 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 code that this relationship is going to follow. 
And it's all about, you know, same goes for me, whenever you want me. And, you know, so again, this, ex and which again is absolutely the uh, 180 from being aloof, but it's this, this is why we love them so much, you know, because there was this kind of, yeah, like this is how it should be. Like the same goes for me. And if you want me to do this, that's okay. Then you're going to do it for me too. And I'll do it for you. And, um, you know, these, these, this was very powerful because we, the, and I talk about this in, in Beatleness, is this notion of, um, you know, pop music being e equipment for living. Um, and, and it was. And we were, it still is, and we were, l you know, listening to these songs. I mean, the three of us were very young, right? So we're, and again, maybe this isn't true for boys, but I, I think that children, you know, are always, you're learning about the social world. What are the rules? How do people get along? Do I show my feelings? Do I not show my feelings? You know, and so they're laying all this out, you know, showing the dynamics of, you know, what a relationship should be like. And uh, it, so I think all I've got to do is, is an example, again, of that, um, this notion of, of reciprocity and fairness. <laughs> Whenever I want you around, yeah All I gotta do is call you on the phone And you come running home, yeah, that's all I gotta do And when I, I wanna kiss you, yeah Well, we did pick up on that, I think, as kids. Uh, I remember one of the standout songs, as a matter of fact, when I was very, very little, was the idea of I'll cry instead. The idea that uh, mm -hmm. John would be so vulnerable as a man, obviously a man to me, right. and he's he's going to cry and say he's, he's angry and he's going to get his revenge, but he's gonna, for now he's going to cry instead. The song I was going to mention actually was If I Fell, which so soon on the coattails of such great success of, of I Want to Hold Your Hand, you get this lyric, 
uh, I found that love was more than just holding hands. Mm-hmm. And that to me yeah, is it a beautiful it, yeah. turn of phrase and also, once again, leaves very little to the imagination. Okay, so if it's not just holding hands, what is it? <laughs> so, But beautifully done and with such... Um, Grace. I mean, this may be a male-female difference. Okay, so when you, when take this line more than just holding hands. I mean, I noticed this too that it kind of references the, the 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 other song. But when I hear that, I don't. It does. It's not sexual to me. To me, it speaks to the complexities of relationship dynamics. Mm. Okay, I don't hear it as. Okay, well, you know, it, me- it means we're we're going to be more intimate physically. I hear it as getting to know a person and getting along with a person is complicated, and that's what they showed us. And you know, and with each successive record, and certainly by the time you get to Rubber Soul, it, you know, I describe it as it's no longer boy meets girl; it's it's man meets woman. And so they. So again, like again, this may just be how female people and male people interpret things differently. But uh, until I never, with if I fell, never thought about it in, in a sexual way at now all. Now, what ever. about "Can't Buy Me Love," which I think for you know a young stallion, which is what Paul McCartney was at that point, it, th- those are pretty mm-hmm. astute and adult lyrics. It's quite an adult take on the subject. I agree. Again, this elevation of love as a principle, you know, as a state. But the interesting thing about uh, Can't Buy Me Love, again, from the perspective of a teenage girl, let's say, is the symbol of the diamond ring, okay? It's a symbol of commitment, right? Mm. So he's saying, well, I, you know, it, it, yeah. it's sort of, he's, he's equivocating on, you know, making a commitment. But he's also, he's basically, um, he, he's eschewing materialism, in a sense. And again, this, this foreshadows, you know, themes that came up later in, in, the, in the 60s. Tell me that you want no diamond ring. And it's like, it speaks to commitment. And, you know, we're going to be in love, but we're not going to have a commitment, which is also foreshadowing the permissiveness that will soon follow in the culture in general. Uh, John Lennon, during the Playboy interviews, of which there's hours and hours of tape, he he references songs like that and saying, well, you know, it's Paul and Jane. Mm -hmm. Those are like a lot of those songs are all about the individual problems of Paul and Jane. And I wonder, in a sense, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I wonder how intentional, more the idea that Paul is writing about, you know, later on there's, you know, we can work it out, um, where where John says, oh, that was definitely Paul and Jane having an argument. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just that's how Paul got it out of his system. But, I mean, it just works beautifully that we all can listen to it, interpret it this way, because unintentionally, I think it is a universal feelings that they're writing about. And, and that, uh, as I say, we're all we're all doing a Rorschach mm-hmm. test here, but sometimes it's just so skillfully rendered that it's uh, Well, that it's I okay. think part of the genius is that it can function as a Rorschach test. Or, you know, in other words, th- there's so many levels that of interpretation or you know there's a lot it's what i call it's a rich text okay so you can interpret it in many many different ways and i think that was true 
in in real time when these songs were coming out, and it's it's I think it's still true today. And for younger people who discover them, and and you know, um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot there, and they can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Now, you know, when you said before, Candy, about you know the sweetness in, inherent in their lyrics and how they're relating to women. By the time of A Hard Day's Night, you know, we get John now in the mode of being, as he perceives it, the victim Mm -hmm. of being hard done by. Um, You know, the jealousy, the feeling belittled or slighted in some way. I mean, Eric alluded before to I'll Cry Instead. Uh, It's a pretty vicious song for me that, you know, that he says he's going to basically be breaking other girls' hearts in two around the world. I mean, anyone who's had a broken heart in a relationship, it's no joke. You know, it's a serious thing. And, okay, he's obviously angry here and he's hurt. But still, there's a vindictiveness there. There is. He's he's angry. It's like, how dare you break up with me? And, you know, Eric said before about that he was, he as a man, to say he's going to cry. I mean, you could say, well, that was kind of unusual, you know, because men don't cry and all that. But um, he was... Um, shy when they start to stare. In other words, it's one thing to cry, but like you can't, you know, you have to preserve in front of your friends this this kind of tough demeanor. Mm. You know, I don't want to cry when there's people there, I get shy when they start to stare. Yeah, I'll cry, but like not in front of anybody. Yeah, but that one of the things about that song, Richard, that's so wonderful is to me, that's John's tribute to all of that stuff he did before the Beatles re- recording formally so that's his tribute to arthur alexander or when he would do a female put upon record you know um i just don't understand where he's the victim and he finally wrote a song that to me was very in keeping with that character he liked to play within the early beatles this guy that's so put upon and to me he's more thrashing as opposed to really meaning he's going to go break hearts i don't think he meant that at all he's he's in a moment where he's he's crying and he just he wants to hurt everything. It's angry. He sounds I mean, he admits to having a chip on his shoulder, yeah. right? So he's he's angry, but you know, at and he's kind of thrashing around. Yeah, definitely. But at no point does he stop to question, as they do in perhaps some other songs, notably yesterday, why did she leave him in the first place? Right. You know, he's so he how dare you break up with me? I'm gonna hurt women to get back at you and I'm going to cry but not in front of my macho friends whatever but at no point well why did she want to leave me right and then you know you can't do that on the same album which is basically about jealousy and mild threats and you know I see that as a precursor to run for your life on rubber soul which is jealousy and really out and out vicious threats well I had a very interesting experience with you can't do that uh, about a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was always one of my favorites. I loved it. I mean, it came out at the time when I was, again, very young, living and breathing them. And I just, the sound of it, the vocal, every, it's just a great, great song, right? Um, but I listened to it about, I mean, again, like some of these songs maybe I hadn't heard for a while, whatever, but I heard it about a year and a half ago and I was horrified by it. And I heard it with, the ears of my eight-year-old self and I'm and I thought wow like what was what did I learn from that what how did that affect me and you know I I don't know like maybe I'd have to be hypnotized to really like get at this but it's part of the larger 
uh, web of messaging, you know, about, again, about relationships, what the rules are going to be, you know. And they laid down, just as they showed the intricate dynamics, they also laid down the rules. And so, you know, I think that a song like this, um, you know, I, I can't say it affected me exactly in this way or that way, but it affected me, for sure. And, and I would say not a good And what way, about Run know? For Your Life, which is even more overt? I mean, there, he, he's just vicious. Yeah, same thing. Little girl. Like, I was a little girl, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, these songs are, are standouts, I think, in the catalog, uh, you know, for the reasons that we're, we're saying. Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, they're only, you know, there's a small number of them. But yeah, they're, they're different in that way. I mean, you can't do that as a really, really powerful, powerful song. And somebody was telling me these young women who are discovering the Beatles now love that song. And they love singing it and, because it's very powerful. There's a lot of power behind mm. it, you know. But, again, I heard it about a year and a half ago. I had it on, and it had been a while since I heard it. And it really stopped me in my tracks. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, how did I process this as an 8, 9, 10-year-old, uh, you know, learning about the social world? How do relationships work? How do I get a boyfriend? How do I keep a boy? You know, the things that one thinks about, you know, as you're getting in teenage years, whatever. And it's a wonderful song. I can't say I don't like the song, but it's, it's um, you know, it, it, it's very intense. I've got something to say that might cause you pain If I catch you talking to that boy again I'm gonna let you down Instead 
Now, something I'd love to get your interpretation of, because I've never really had a strong handle on it, which is the classic line, you know, it's always touted from she's a woman, I know that she's no peasant. Meaning what? <laughs> yeah. It was a couplet that just rhymes, Richard. There's, I don't think there's anything. Yeah, I think I, I agree with Eric. I think it, it rhymed. But, but, okay, now here's where we, you know, get into all the analysis. I mean, we know, you know, Paul was very class conscious, you know, got it from his mother about, you know, being coming up in the world and status and all that. So, you know, so there, there's an element of that, you know. But, but again, like in... Um, you uh, can't buy me love. It, it's also kind of rejecting the materialism. It, it's and elevating love as a state. It's saying, you know, like I, I, it's, you know, all she has to do is love me. I don't need. She doesn't have to give me gifts. She just has to love me forever. But you got. You know what, Candy? You're you're hitting on. You, you make you, the two of you have just made me think of something I haven't thought of in a while. Okay, so I know that she's no peasant. She was Dr. Asher's daughter from Wimpole Street, right? Right. The Ashers were uh, very, very, very sophisticated people. Right, you know, exactly. The Dr. Asher was, 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 you know, well-known and published. And, of course, um, Jane's mom was, you know, the famous oboe teacher, right? I think from right. Guildhall School or one of them. So they were very—you're right. Uh, as a guy who was really involved in consciousness of class, uh, the, there you go. He's kind of out of his league with Jane. Right, and it's also peasant and not in terms of money, but just somebody who is, you know, uncouth, not sophisticated, you know. In other words, it's it, that it, none of that mattered, if, you know. In other words, she's not that way, but but it but it doesn't matter because as long as she, you know, she as long as she loves me forever and ever, you know, that's and, and the she's she's thing. twenty years old and she's so worldly and she's a woman, not a girl. Exactly. She's a woman, not a girl. My love don't give me present. I know that she's no peasant. Only ever has to give me love forever and forever. My love don't give me present. You mentioned before Norwegian Wood, which is, as John himself said, is obviously about one of his clandestine affairs. Um, but I, you know, only recently I was listening to When I Get Home. And it just, it fascinated me. I love it when things are just dropped in there, you know, like a little pebble in a pond and it, it causes ripples. And mm -hmm. he's basically singing about this woman he can't wait to get home to. That's the whole song and how, you know, he's just madly in love with her. And then there's this line right near the end when he sings, I got no business being here with you this way. And it's like, 
okay, is this a one-night stand or something? You know, is this, a, you know, a woman on the side? What's that about? Well, she wouldn't be home, though, would she, Richard? She wouldn't be. She. I think you might be having two. There's the conflict in John as the writer. He he is, when he gets home, he wants to get home to the loving woman in yeah. his life. But but at the same time, much like Norwegian would, you know, I once had a girl who maybe I should say once had me. Uh, there's the, John was always in conflict about, you know, the girl on the side, you know, the the mistress and the the loving, as as Chuck Berry would say, keeping the home fires boiling. But, but would you take that when he sings, I got no business being here with you this way, that that is what he's alluding to, that he's with someone he shouldn't be with? It's to a separate girl in the same song to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's you know, would be a pretty, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a woman, but yeah, that's, I think that would be an obvious interpretation. It's interesting because it's just a one line. The rest of the song doesn't allude to anyone else. But that's the magic of John, Richard, and Candy. I got to pick up on this. It doesn't necessarily mean a woman. Explain. No, it doesn't. It could be, it could be a business partner. He could be working late at the office yeah. and like, I got to get home. You know, I mean, yeah, but when, the way... But it does imply a certain, you know, I'm doing something wrong, I need to get out of here. It does sort of suggest that. As the Sultan of Segway, I wanted to use that <laughs> into my uh, observing one of the most amazing songs in the Beatles canon, because it, to me, refers to gay love, and that is You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Really? It might. 
it might. You don't see that as as a as a, a song about gay love, Richard. Absolutely not. No. It could be. It could also be about you know that there's you know sometimes you don't reveal your feelings. You know maybe the person's married or in a really. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think that that has kind of come to be an interpretation of that because of the whole Epstein thing. But like, I don't know. It's not necessarily that. To me, it fits in with the other songs where, as Candy said, where he doesn't want to be shown up in public and he's being embarrassed by this. Yeah, in other words, it, it's it, it's unrequited love. In other, this is the kind, again, like when you think about these songs as, you know, what is the, what are we learning, if you will, uh, you know, as young people from these songs, right? So it's like sometimes you don't show your feelings because the per- you think that you're out of the, the person's going to reject you or they're already in a relationship or you don't want to, you're afraid you're going to get hurt. So it, it, it could mean many things. It could be. It's it's funny you mention that because I I saw it as John Lennon's version of Lou Reed's Perfect Day, where you know there was no question when when asked, Lou Reed said, "No, I wrote Perfect Day as a love song to Andy, you know Warhol." And mm-hmm. I always saw um, once I became kind of conscious of such things, I always immediately saw you've got to hide your love away as as a sort of sympathetic love song to uh, to Brian, you know that. It could be. It could be, but it's not necessarily on the Help album got some interesting songs you know another girl i've met quite a few nobody in all the world can do what she can do yeah that doesn't leave a lot to the imagination right that's certainly a sexual in you oh, yeah. know, for sure yes. right yeah um but again like what does the listener what's the takeaway okay so um i want to quote a some a, a fan that i a male fan who was 12 at the time said i took solace in that I found someone better attitude. I wanted to sing it to a girl who wouldn't give me the time of day. So in other words, I don't need you. I found someone better. You know, that was, Mm. you know, the guy's takeaway and it kind of felt empowering. But to a female listener, what does it say? It says he's always looking, right? I might, I could get dumped at any time, right? I'm only, you know, it's like women are like streetcars. Another one will come along, right? So, you know, so... So, I mean, to his credit, he's no fool and he doesn't take what he doesn't want. So he's being very honest with her, okay? I have to tell you, you know, he, he's being, you know, he's telling her. But it, but it gets to, you know, again, what is, what is the takeaway for a, a male listener and a female listener are very different. Yeah. Well, there's more power in it. In other words, if you're being, what I would take away from that is, as a male is... Um, I, I, I want to be with you, but if, if there's abusiveness or something that I find I don't like, um, you know, either get snapped to it or, or ship out, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, like you say, uh, girls are like a bus. There'll be another one along in 10 minutes and, uh, out you go, unless you shape up, which I think is misogyny to me. In other words, I, we don't know the other side of the story, as as we've been saying in this, is that's the guy's side of the story. Well, what's the girl's side? We don't know. We'll never know. Well, another theme that, that comes up a lot, and this is with McCartney especially, is this notion of, you know, the, love's nasty habit of disappearing overnight, mm. right? I mean, you hear this a lot, and I think that a, another girl captures that. In other words, to the female listener... You know, it's like you're, you know, you're fine for as long as you're fine. But like, here's someone better who, by the way, will always be my 
friend again the friend you mm. know it's, friend with it's, benefits right but he's 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 using the language of friendship which again to the female listener that's a that's a nice thing that's the most deadly thing in the song to me because for a woman because that implies that the the woman he's singing to will not always be his friend and he already knows that so he's already he's already kissing her goodbye saying look this girl will always be my friend you uh, i don't know well i mean you're taking friend in a particular kind of way i mean i think it's more abstract than that you know it's about loyalty and and uh oh that you're making you my know, case your honor you know i don't know <laughs> i mean again like you said before, these are Rorschach tests, and they absolutely are. But what's interesting, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things I tried to do in Beatleness was not only about, I mean, I did get into lyrics somewhat, but just the whole experience of growing up with them is that it was a different experience if you, depending on how old you were and whether you were male or female. So the Rorschach, it, it's kind of like, it, it, it's many Rorschach tests, you know what I mean? No, that's what's. That's why they. We're talking about it sixty years later. All of us. Exactly. Aren't we, you know? Exactly. Because the, it, there's so much there. For I have got another girl, another girl, making me say that I've got nobody but you. But as from today, well, I've got somebody that's new. I ain't no fool, and I don't take what I. I think we should talk about you're going to lose that girl and the night before mm. thematically linked yeah yeah you're going to lose that girl is in many ways I think like she loves you in that you have the protagonist is kind of looking out for this woman and and he's advising this friend to like treat her well you know and I mean he's a little self-serving because I'll I'll go out with her if you, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll make a her. point of, of taking her away from you, which is a, a lovely right. 
passive aggressive. Well, it's not so passive, is it? It's an aggressive move. Like, you know, you, you know, the bro code does not apply if you continue upon this behavior pattern. It's a, it's a, a lovely and unique. I don't remember any other rock and roll song ever coming from that. It, angle. it really. I'm not kidding. It could have been a bit later on, right? You know, Keith Richards addressing Brian Jones about Anita Pallenberg. Oh, he didn't bother, did he? He just grabbed mm. her. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. But again, like, you know, what is the what is the impact on the listener, you know, and of course the bigger question, like, you know, what makes the Beatles so great and why did we love them so much? Because a song like this, which is just sound so beautiful the vocals the the different you know uh you know the round it's just it's just an incredibly beautiful song yeah i mean i think all these songs from the middle period which you know might be my favorite period the the help period they they you know they start you know people say about rubber soul the lyrics got more sophisticated which of course is true but you start to see this in in help in you know these songs where they Again, they're talking about relationships. They're working out the details, you know. And you're going to lose that girl is really, in a way, I think encapsulates uh, what was different about the way they approached these questions, you know. That that. And again, in, we know that in their personal lives, they, you know, they were not, you know, necessarily so enlightened. But um, as a as a song, it it really it, it's different and it's remarkable and it's you know kind of he's looking out for her. Yeah. And the night before is you know it's like uh, which uh, you're going to lose that girl. Not so much. There's really not so much overt sexuality. The night before sort of imply you know is more you might say implies more sexuality, but it's from it, it's really a it's like um, will you still love me tomorrow yeah. from the perspective of the man. And exactly. Again, that yeah. makes it very unusual. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you about that one. You know, for a man to say like, "Oh, I remember what we did, and now you don't want me anymore." Yeah. It's like I yeah. wonder. That's one that I wonder if he's stepped out of the whole Jane thing. You know, it's almost like he's writing about a character there. As a, the other ones seem very obvious to me, it's about him and Jane, him and Jane fighting, fighting, fighting. You know, that's what John always said about it. That one is a little bit more sophisticated. And like, is it about? Is it a character thing? And is Paul going into his phase where he's not writing about himself, but writing about a situation based on something he's experienced? Well, it could also be that they had a wonderful night together and then they had a big fight in the morning. I mean, you never know. That seems to know. be a pattern with him, actually. If you look at all, <laughs> continuing on with, with uh, Linda, you know, Sunday morning fight about Saturday night. You're gonna lose that yes, girl. Yes, you're gonna lose that girl. You're gonna lose, yes, yes, you're gonna gonna lose girl. that girl. If you don't take her out tonight, she's gonna change she's her mind. Gonna Taking her away from you 
of the therefore what of it all is that it suggests a different kind of masculinity, yeah. different priorities or, or different you know things that maybe certainly you didn't hear about and men were not presenting themselves that way at, that much in pop music before that. I mean, yes, you always had men, you know, crying and vulnerable and heartbreak hotel and, you know, yes, pe- you know, men were dumped and hurt about it. But there was something in the way... <laughs> she moves. Uh, that, you're right. That there was in, in the language, the the art of the storytelling that made it different. Again, it, it's like this is how intelligent men think about relationships, and I think this was a big part of the appeal for women. Ticket to ride. No, no. All right, you guys both got to explain to me. All right, help me out on a ticket to ride. <laughs> Where's the sex in that one? Oh, the, well, he, again, like it, it gets back to why we're even talking about this. In other words, the therefore what of it all. So um, the thing with Ticket to Ride is the line, she said that living with me was bringing her down. She could never be free when I was around. And I had uh, somebody I interviewed uh, talked about that, you know, parents didn't like this living together. All right, so we're already in summer of 65 here. So there's this, you know, there was a suggestion of a kind of more grown-up relationship that's having problems, you know. And so, but but the, the, the thing there is the implication of living together, which I think was... Oh, how interesting. I never took... at the time. It's funny, living with me could just be, you know, you're in my life. Uh, and I. it's funny, you guys, both, well, at least you, Candy, mentioned that, because I would think, oh, that's just living with me. Yeah, I'm living with my girlfriend. She lives at her parents' house or whatever, but oh, my God, what a pain in the ass this is getting to be, uh, you know, for her. And, and again, like with the um, uh, I'll Cry Instead, he doesn't look at his own behavior. Like, you know, in right. other words, he ex- he's acknowledging... Um, she could never be free when I was around. And, and again, this is getting into, you know, the high 60s a little bit and what that means in terms of women's roles and expectations in relationships. Sure. Multiple partners. You know, why should she be tied? Why, can it, why is it okay for the guy to go out and sort of, you know, romance three or four birds? And why is it exclusive to men? Why can't the girls go out? You know, why can't she be free? 
Right, but again, it, it's not even necessarily sexual because bringing her down, in other words, he's a pain in the ass. Like, maybe yes. he's micromanaging her, you know? Maybe he's just annoying to be around. Like, who knows, you know? Jeez, yeah. we just got back to I'll get you again, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but I want to say something about Ticket to Ride, um, you know, which we heard in the, in the summer of 65. Um, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, the... Um, increasingly overt sexuality or sex in these songs, the, the real game changer, I think, was not anything the Beatles did, but um, satisfaction uh, yeah, I thought you were gonna say in that. the summer of 65. Yeah. Because that, you know, they, they were living together in Ticket to Ride, and there's all this other stuff that we've been talking about. But with, with um, satisfaction, it's just explicit it's out there and that really i think opened the floodgates to more explicit lyrics well and the stones picked up on that as well when they uh, they took it a step further with let's spend the nights together it wasn't good enough to spend the night together with your daughter now um now it's your son yeah i don't follow i'm not what do you mean i'm not oh that's you don't see that as a really gay song let's spend the night together no now no. Well, David Bowie's version, yes. Oh, we we could have fun just grooving around. I, I, I all right. Well, I went to art school and I had a lot of gay friends, and that was a song that multiple gay friends of mine pointed out to me as being a really landmark song for them because it was the 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 Rolling Stones weren't just after the girls; they were after the guys too, in in a sexual way, which was very very. Uh, revelatory to some of my friends at school, you know, at, at in art college. So yeah, I well, just thought that was obvious know. to everybody. I, I, it seems, to, I mean, I, it, what the beauty of Bowie's uh, rendition of that is that yeah, it becomes like totally gay. <laughs> well, because that was after he and Jagger were in bed. I mean, you know, as as uh, as uh, Angie, you know, said. Right, I, right. I always know he, he. Angie said she always knew Bowie would end up with Iman. <laughs> This is really cute of her. Get it? A man? E-man? Uh, anyway. Oh, good. All right. And I guess not. I guess I'm the only one getting it. But, that but uh, never... I mean, I never... I mean, again, like, certainly not in the at the time. Who knew of such things? Um, but, um, I mean, satisfaction, I mean, really changed a lot. I mean, it just was, you know, just... Um, it's a great pop really art the, record. The entryway to lots of other yeah, things. Yeah, and you know. in that era, I would say two songs where the Beatles take it up to another level at least girl where you've got obviously the tit 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 backing and and the size and that line that can be open to actually multiple interpretations pain will lead to pleasure I mean the girl in this song is clearly not a virgin um but this is his Fifty Shades of Grey uh, Richard yeah. and and mind you it's so funny what you just said and the size the size of the tit tit. Oh, the sigh. You know, different different yes, spelling. The magic of your size. Yes, yes oh, thank you. Right. <laughs> right. But 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 you know, so there it's kind of you know it, it's kind of smutty innuendo if you like. But with Day Tripper, she's a big teaser. She took me half the way there. Tried to please her. She only played one night stands. I mean, that's just laying it on the line.
Did either of you guys in your research, I've read and with great um, skepticism that the original lyrics may have been, she's a prick teaser. Have either of you ever come across anything Yeah, well, to that's what that? McDonald says. Oh, is that? Oh, really? I, I, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so you, you, you put credence in that, Candy? I have no idea. And in another, again, I would say, therefore what? Either way. I mean, to me, all of this kind of stuff in the middle period we're getting into now, where they were on top of the world, they could get away with anything, they were getting laid all the time, they, you know, but let's not forget, they were in their early 20s. So there's something very puerile about a lot of this kind of stuff that they would drop into these songs. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, the question is, what, what was the impact on the listener? Or, you know, how, do, how does the, you know, as, as a cultural message, as a piece of art, whatever you want to call it, like, what was the impact, I think, is, is really the key. You know? It always kind of struck me um, that when on the final tour in America, John would often introduce Day Tripper as being about a naughty lady. Yeah. In, yeah. in other words, just in case anybody missed the point. <laughs> I, rem- I mean, you know, I, re- I can remember, again, I was always interested in lyrics because I always loved to sing along. And I remember I didn't know what one night stands. It sound I was like Mike. I thought it was like she only plays where Mike stands. Like who's Mike? Like what is this? <laughs> what are they talking about? You know. And there's a, I have you know a lot of I've sort of collected some of these things, these misheard lyrics. You know, uh, this friend of mine's little brother. You know, can't buy me love. Camp Binny Bomb. What's Camp Binny Bomb? You know. So it's like this. You know, like. If you you know we were so young that we we didn't have a context for this like we, we you know I mean obviously over time we you know we grew up and became more sophisticated but um, you know these things speak for yourself like, <laughs> no comment <laughs> Just but um, you know but again the thing with girl that I find that to me the interesting lyric in girl is. Um, She's the kind of girl to put you down when friends are there. You feel a fool. Again, it's like, do not embarrass yeah. me in front of my friends. Like, that's a really... And again, like, thinking about it as a young person, a preteen or early teen, like, you're beginning to think about these things. How do you relate to other people in public? What do you say? What do you not say? And the other thing is when she says she's looking good, she acts as if it's understood. Again, this emphasis on how she looks, okay? Yeah. Um and the the confidence she acts as if it's understood like oh you look nice today and maybe she rolled her eyes or said of course or whatever yes you yes know. perfect confidence so so mike stands might be related to richard stands one of my favorite characters from the pledge of allegiance and right, the exactly. republic <laughs> for richard stands so there, there's a relationship somewhere uh, generationally right. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's right. We learned, Richard, we learned so much doing oh, this we freaking do. show. We do. Have you ever noticed but, that? Uh, pain will lead to pleasure. As I said, that could be take. I mean, Lennon himself, I think, in the Rolling Stone 1970 interview, uh, you know, aligned it with religion. Um, uh, you know, a sort of, nice. a sort of Christian or Catholic <laughs> upbringing. But, but um, as I said, it could be taken in a number of ways, right? It could be taken as being abusive. No, or just just a Fifty Shades of Grey, Richard. That stuff's been around forever. You know, the bondage and the, and the submission and all that stuff. Mm. 
Maybe it's about delayed gratification. I mean, who knows? Yeah. You know, I'm going. I'm word. going with bondage on that one. I'm, I'm seriously <laughs> saying that you know these guys were exposed to everything, and we found it out in dribs and drabs later on. Like I say, the Playboy interviews were very enlightening uh, at the end of John's life, where you know he's talking openly about you know, and and Paul, forty years later, would talk about oh, when we were going to play in Las Vegas in '64, they lined up. You know, would you like some hookers or is John would call them right. It was, was. was like satiricon and yeah. all that. Yeah, but, yeah. But if you, but I, I don't know. To me, that's a little bit of a stretch because you have to look at the line in, in the context of the whole mm-hmm. song. Like I, I don't know what that means. I mean, I never knew what it meant. I mean, I this this line, man must break his back to earn his day of leisure. Like what you know, it, it it's a. I think it has to be looked at kind of as a whole thing and. You know, to say pain will lead to pleasure is about bondage, I think, is just a real stretch. Wouldn't you say, Candy, that overall, Girl is, though, a pretty misogynistic song. It's a chauvinistic attitude all the way throughout. Well, there's an attitude in there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even with the tit, 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 right? You know, it's kind of schoolboys. Right. Well, he's he's laid it out that who she who he's singing about. She's the kind of girl to put you down. Friends are there. I mean, that's the worst thing a girl could do. Yeah. You know, to embarrass you in front of your friends. And this comes up a lot. I'll cry instead. You can't do that. Everybody's green because I'm the one who won your love. They'll see you. You know, they'll laugh in my face. You know. So this, he has told us who she is. She's the kind of girl who would do this. So yeah, there is a kind of. Um, you know, he's he's sort of, you know, would I call it misogynist? I don't know. But he's he's this is a girl who, you know, he's met his match in her in any case. Well, talk about meeting ma- their match. A set of lyrics I thought were much more sophisticated, uh, much more adult for no one on Revolver. Yeah. Which I think is amongst Paul's finest lyrics, actually. Yeah, I would. I think it's one of the most beautiful love songs I've ever mm. heard. More, more, more about... To me, the idea that it, despondence, like this is just going to fail, this relationship. And he was ultimately right, because I think all of those songs were about Jane. Right. Really. Probably, yeah. In 67, it's still about the innuendo. Wait until 68 before they become completely overt. But they're definitely upping the ante, okay? I, I, I love the fact that while I don't like censorship so much, right, in film or in song, what the the fantastic byproduct of that was always how the people got around it, you know. Would drop, you know, in films whether it was I don't know the exploding bottle of champagne or you know the the rushing waves coming in the tide. Right. Um, we've got like Penny Lane, the line "Fish and Finger Pie," with a little help from my friends. What do you see when you turn out the light? I can't tell you, but I know it's mine. Lovely Rita. As you said, you know, a friend or two and the, the outro with all the sort of sexual panting. And then I am the walrus, crab a fishwife, pornographic priestess. Boy, you've been a naughty girl. You let your knickers down. And then the outro with everybody's got one. So it's all still the sort of smutty innuendo, isn't it? But they're pushing the envelope at the same time. I, I wouldn't call that pushing the envelope. I mean, yeah, I don't know. The question also is like, who heard that? Like, you know, fish and finger pie. Yes, years later when I started reading about it, yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, it, it, I understood what that was about. Agreed, yeah, me too. 
But at the time, of course no. not. Candy, as somebody who was living through it in real time as a young woman, was there a Beatles song that just clubbed you over the head as being, oh my God, this is just about sex? Never. Not until sitting on a sofa with a sister or two kind of perked, yeah. me, perked my ears <laughs> up a little bit. Um, but, you know, again, like I was very young, you know, but. Start- but, but it did trigger something. Yeah. Yeah. Why did that one blow past me? That's so funny. Both of you guys mentioned this, and you know, sitting on this, it just, just blew past me. I just thought it was so innocent. So it's so interesting that both of you guys picked up something sexual in that that I just kind of ran past me like a train. <laughs> well, again, I mean, people hear different things. White album came out while I'm doing the road. I was only 14, you know. So how long was I even aware of these kinds of things, you know? Um, I can, I'll tell. I mean, certainly by then, Paul was my favorite Beatle, which of course, you know, I switched from Ringo at some point. But um, yeah, I mean, I I didn't hear them as sexual, and I mean now I do. In a, in a different kind of way. But um, I didn't really then. Now, of course, teen, you know, I mean, if you ask somebody who's older, um, you know, but, but again, they never clobbered you over the head with sex ever, ever. So, as I said, there's like the innuendo through 67 and, and some sort of smutty stuff. But as you said, certainly us as kids at the time wouldn't have picked up on that. And it's, it's I'm sure a lot of the adults didn't either. But once we... You mean like fish and finger pies? Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe in Liverpool they would have known that, you know. But um, I, I don't know. I don't know how many people would have picked up on this stuff. But by 68, it's like, you know, this is the year of two virgins. And so <laughs> subtlety has kind yeah. of gone out the window. And we got happiness is a warm gun, which is overtly sexual, brilliantly written, you know, that it mm-hmm. actually could allude to a gun. Or it could allude, you know, to sex. Um, or both. Yeah, why don't we do it in the road? Helter Skelter. I even think that the guitar solo in Year Blues is extremely sexual. Okay, so Richard, a couple of times you've mentioned that I have to speak to my therapist. I, I think when we come to that, <laughs> you need to speak with your therapist. I'm just saying, you know, just, you know, just between buddies. Because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not hearing it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you know what, babe? Whatever floats your boat, I'm into it. I'm behind you 100%. But I'm just saying that that's I, I'm dying to hear you explain well, this. Well, so you know, go ahead. he was in a very sort of overtly sexual period, right? He's um, he's communicating with Yoko while he's in India. As he said, he's writing that I'm so lonely. You know, he's how lonely he is. And that guitar rhythm is a sexual rhythm. And then you go into this kind of electrifying solo, which is almost orgasmic. And I think that's how he was thinking. I mean, it, it permeates a lot of his songs in this period. Black across my mind, from my soul. Feel so suicidal, even an intensity and a persistence and a yeah I mean I, I could see how you could hear that I mean you know it's very dare I say aggressive yeah. Um, but yeah I mean it, it's, it's got a it drives you know it does you know I agree with you that the sexually explicit you know leaving very little to the imagination really picks up with the White Album and of course why don't we do it in the road Funny thing about that one that, that always uh, destroys it for me is having spent time in India, and especially in the north, where the monkeys are have a, have a unique relationship with the human beings in a town like Rishikesh, and they just follow you around, and they just they almost they they not almost they tease you. They do things to irritate you. Sometimes throw things at you, or run up from behind you and pull at you, or you know, do something, you know, to kind of get your attention. And uh, I, the story I read years ago was that what inspired Maka was going down into the village from Maharishi's camp and seeing the copulation, shall we say, um, of monkeys in the road. And uh, that it, some, it kind of stuck with him how odd that was. I don't know if it's re really a true story, but I've heard it. I read that somewhere. I mean, I don't know. But you do see monkeys copulating in the road in Rishikesh. Trust me. <laughs> I believe it. So, but I, I like I say, I how much is that Paul reacting to something that was a cartoon in a sense in his experience in India, as opposed to saying, okay, I'm I'm going to come out and do this sort of sexy song about us all fucking in the road, you know. I don't know. I mean, I think 
there's a tendency to overthink some of this. I mean, the idea of doing it, you know, I mean, again, like you have to put this also in the social, in the historical context. I mean, by 68, you know, like there was this increasing uh, overt, uh, what call it, permissiveness, whatever, sexuality, you know, in the culture in general. I mean, by 68, you had Rona Martin's laughing and all this. I mean, sexual innuendo is everywhere. And again, yeah. I, I trace that really to the Stones, not, I mean, to, to both the Beatles and the Stones for different reasons. But, but by 68, that they would do a song like, that. why don't we do it in the road? I mean, it probably was inspired by watching animals, but the, the that he would take it and make this silly little ditty out of it is just like, of course he did that, you know? <laughs> I don't know. And again, it, as a woman, and at that point now, as you said, I think what you were about 14. Yeah, White Album, yeah. How did you hear these songs once they were being overtly sexual? I just thought it was silly. It was funny, yeah. you know? It was like, you know, it was like, I mean, I... Obviously, I knew what it was talking about. I just, um, I don't know. It was just more of the Beatles talking to me about all kinds of interesting things. I don't know. Like, it didn't, it didn't offend me, certainly. Um, I, th- I thought it was funny. I still think it's kind of funny. So when we, move, when we move a little bit beyond the White Album, we get into Get Back. And I, I know that we're kind of skipping over because Get Back comes after, you know, Abbey Road. Um, did things like uh, Don't Let Me Down, did that speak to you as a teenager? As I like love being that about- song. I still love the song, but I did not hear it. I mean, the loudest thing for me in that song it was the passion, the desperation, the pleading, the, the hope, the hopefulness. I mean, yes, you can read sexual innuendo into that, of course, but that was not my takeaway. Well, I, I mean, for me, there's a few takeaways. One is I always thought it was kind of as much as he was in love to be announcing to the world I'm in love for the first time, which right. really disses yeah. Cynthia. It doesn't matter if that's mm-hmm. true. No. Uh, it's just not, it's yeah. not somewhere I would choose to go. I think it's just hurtful. I think he was in a tough place in those days, Richard. And, you know, the way he sings from the first time she really do me. Yeah, she do me. She do me good. That to me is pretty overt, especially the way he's almost like heavy breathing into the microphone. Right. But it was but in the context of the whole song. See, this is the thing. It's like, you know, you you take the song as a gestalt. So she do me good. It's like, yeah, okay. Obviously, it's very sexual. But but that wasn't for me the takeaway. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know quite how to explain that. I always thought um, that 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 song informed my love, and I always remember Tony Tyler and Roy Carr, and I don't remember which of the two who wrote that wonderful coffee table book, but they would talk about Paul writing about my love does it good, and their response was so what, so does mine, and um, <laughs> so, and I think that song in particular is fascinating because. You're right. It does diss Cynthia, which is terrible. But he's going through a divorce with Cynthia, I think, as he's writing it. So that doesn't surprise me. But it's um, it's putting it out there that this is what this song is about. I'm all right. I've I've jettisoned one sexual relationship, one one you know life relationship, and now I'm going into this next one. Don't let me down. Don't be, don't disappoint. Oh yeah. Me. 
Um, and it, it, and there's really nothing else that that song's about, which, you know, so it's not really as open to interpretation or when they slip something in like in Dig a Pony, you know, one of, one of the great like fish and finger pie moments of Dig a Pony is, you know, penetrate any place you go. Well, that's not really, you don't have to be Fellini, like I said, to figure it out. Yeah, but Eric, Eric, let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that when he was, you know, throwing out all those things? lyrics for you know just you know that he was thinking about penetration in a sexual way i mean do you think that was consciously on his mind richard and i have a a little banter that goes back and forth but uh which is you know i exaggerate some of these things but in this particular case yes i do believe lennon was a wordsmith and i think he chose every word carefully and yes in that that case penetrate any place you go meant exactly what i what you think it could mean because right. he would have chosen I mean, another word. That's just my opinion. Yeah, but he's, you know, there are a lot of, you know, multi-syllable words in there. He was doing this whole, it almost has a rap quality almost, mm. you know, like just kind of throwing out these things, syndicate any boat you wrote. What does that mean? I mean, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think he would have chosen a, a nonsensical word if he meant to. That's my entire point, because he could... You know, crop a lock of fish white. He, he could come up with something that meant nothing if he had no placeholder. But if he meant to say something, he said it. And so that's yeah, why I think, maybe. yes, I, I think mm-hmm. um, Lennon was. Yeah, but does penetrate have to be sexual? It doesn't. I mean, penetrate any place you go. Does it have to be about. Means oh. to have it have an impact, you know. I mean, he was already at that point, you know, very, you know, developing a political consciousness. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, in, in in the very same song, he would have chosen the word instigate. I, no, I think he knows exactly. Like I say, maybe. Lennon was a wordsmith. I think he chose his words carefully. I think he knew exactly what he was doing when he did these things. You know, and he would he would comment later in life when he would uh, sub- substitute masticate for masturbate when he knew he couldn't get away with it and he didn't want the song to be uh, banned. So he was always conscious of that. So, yeah, I think it, I think it was a message, you know? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence with it. Let's say that he did intend it to be sexual. What does that then mean? What does the line mean? Now I'm in other words, <laughs> does it mean like you're a celebrity? Does it mean you're a celebrity and they let you do it? Like what is Random it? thoughts. Random thoughts about, you know, he digs a pony. I told what? you so. All I want is you. Somehow Yoko became symbolized by animals, whether it was um, everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey or I dig a pony. And he says, I dig a pony. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Everybody's got something to hide. That's wrong because he wrote that before he got together with Yoko. Yeah, he wrote it before he got together with Yoko, but he's in that mode of thinking about her. He did he he wrote it after he had met her. And so, you know, he was thinking about her. Like as he said, Yoko sent those messages to him, I'm a cloud in the sky, look for me. You know, all yeah. of that got through to him and I think informed him. So, I'm just saying that I think when he digs a pony, he digs he digs Yoko, and when he's got everyone's got something to hide except me and my Yoko, uh, you can substitute. Why he went that direction, I can't tell you. But it's it, you know part of his writing technique of of disguising things as he did in Norwegian Wood could be part of it. It just something in that wonderful mind that we only had forty years with, and even less when you think about publicly how much we knew John. So. Maybe if we'd had more time with him, we would have figured out 
what all that meant. You know, why he chose those metaphors, I can't tell you. But I see I mean, that. Okay. I remember with, um, you know, thinking you can imitate everyone you know. I do remember at the time thinking it was a reference to the Stones. Could mm. be. Oh, well, yeah, they had a love-hate yeah. thing. Right. Candy, what do you hear in Oh, Darling? Well, <laughs> again, I had a kind of an epiphany about this song. Um, oh dear me. When the when was it? Must have been October when the when the uh, remastered was it remastered or re- yeah. you know the the new Abbey Road came out last year. Yeah. Yeah, and I I don't know when I had heard them last. It wasn't terribly long ago. I can't remember exactly when, but I was listening to them and I was really struck by both Oh Darling and I Want You, She's So Heavy, as basically like wild displays of male id. Hmm. Um, Male id? Please explain. Well, it's funny because I actually wrote something about this that I never did anything with. But, you know, I wrote at the time, they scream desire against incessant, persistent rhythms creating a menacing feel. Four times Paul scream promises, I'll never do you no harm. Which is kind of weird if you think about it. Um, and then on I Want You, you know, he's, he's being driven mad for eight minutes. Okay, eight minutes. You know, and so it, the, both of these songs I heard, again, I have different ears now, you know, 1969, I was 13. Not that I haven't heard them for all those years, but like, I should probably say too that the last few years we have seen in our culture a, what you might call a, you know, sort of resurgence of overt misogyny. And so I will admit that my antenna are a little sharper you know, a little, I mean, I'm kind of fine-tuned to hear these kinds of things, perhaps, in a new way. But nevertheless, like, I can remember listening to the new Abbey, you know, the redone Abbey Road, which I love. I mean, I just, you know. But those, both of those songs just struck me as, I mean, there was almost something menacing about um, Oh Darling um, and... Uh, I don't know. And then this being driven mad, you know, John, for eight minutes. Um, I don't know. It's just So how do you reconcile that with what you said earlier about the sweetness of their attitude? Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> they're a mixed bag. I mean, it's possible that at that point it was towards, you know, the end. They didn't care. They were just doing their thing. And... Uh, you know, both of those songs contain attitudes and tropes that have existed in pop music, blues music, you know, forever. So it's not like they pulled this out of thin air. Both of those songs are extremely conventional in a lot of ways. There's really nothing special about them. But so they kind of just let loose with this, as I say, their, their displays of, of id, um, mm. you know, is, is really my takeaway there. I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't make them bad human beings. I mean, it's just, I, I don't really know what to make of it. But, but in, in thinking about Abbey Road, what I had been writing at the time was that, um, you know, George, of course, always being, you know, the, the little brother having to put up with these two big egos and all that. And if you 
and again, thinking about the Beatles' overall message of love and peace and all this, if you look at Abbey Road, their final statement, uh, if you will, um, you know, George's songs on Abbey Road are beautiful, thoughtful love songs. Yeah. They don't contain tired old tropes from blues or whatever. They, they're beautiful love songs, thoughtful. Oh, darling, please believe me. I'll never do you no harm. Believe me when I tell you, I'll never do you no harm. You know, so far, everything we've been discussing really is Lennon and McCartney. We haven't really been discussing right. the songwriting of George or, for that matter, Ringo. There's right. not a lot of sex involved with Octopus's Garden unless you're <laughs> really out there, Richard. But, I mean, even George's songs, though, right? I can't think of them as being overtly sexual. I mean, once we get post-Beatles, no. you get something like Simply Shady. But, um, mm. 
A soft-hearted Hannah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's little, there's moments, but I would say of the Beatles, he probably was getting the most action, Richard. And I, I would guess that, you know, certainly when I did extensive interviews for I Want to Be Your Fan, um, when I spoke to so many women, the overwhelming majority were just in love with George. In love with George in a really interesting way to me. Just so so consuming. Not really, uh, you know, the Paul because he was so pretty or John because he was so intellectual, but more like there was something about George that seemed to grab the majority of the women's souls I spoke with. He's more thoughtful. He's more reflective. He's more contemplative. And I think that was always true. And it's funny, that's in song, isn't it? Because he wasn't that way in real life all the time. You only have to watch the footage in Living in the Material World, the Scorsese documentary on George. It's anthology time and Ringo is filming. It's just home video. So this isn't for public consumption. And they're looking at the galleys, the proofs for the anthology book. And looking at some of the early photos in Liverpool where they're, you know, some parties with girls. And George isn't very nice about it. Oh, that's what's the name? Pat. Pat. Who's this? We don't know that. Some other lady. God, they were horrible. Lady of the night. Horrible girls, weren't they? No, George is a very fine leg. It's a nice bit of stocking top. Just because you've graduated in the world. (laughs) They're fine ladies. These guys are not saints by any means. And, and in fact, if you look at the, uh, you know, the, the stories of their lives as we know them, I mean, one could argue that George was maybe the, the worst of the lot in some yeah. ways. Oh, definitely. But, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. But in terms of, you know, getting back to the music, I mean, the, the most uh, downloaded Beatles song is... You know, here so, comes the yeah. sun. You know, when I, in in 1964, you know, my first favorite Beatle was Ringo. Then probably around puberty, I switched to Paul, um, and then probably around high school or college, switched to John. Was mostly John my whole life. You know, John person. Mm-hmm. But I have be you know, if, if asked today that annoying question, who's your favorite Beatle? I now would say George. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, even though, like we're saying, in his personal life... Well, he, he, at least he didn't hit any of the girls, and the other three did. It's documented, you know what I mean? So that's really kind of nasty. So George may have been misogynistic. Um, may have been. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, just and what I realized that, you know, my short list or short one of my you know if, if I like looking at my quote-unquote favorite Beatles songs that I had a disproportionate number of George songs and I was sort of you know the last certainly probably the last decade or so last, anyway with, had I had become a George person like without even realizing it and I think his whole spiritual thing was really really important and I think that that really hasn't, I mean, there's a lot more that can be said about that. But I think that, I do think that he was, you know, he, he was he was kind of always a little bit disgruntled and annoyed with the whole thing. He didn't like, you know, he started out with, don't bother me, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. perfect. You know, his first statement was, don't bother me. Yes. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that he, he has a depth to him. And again, I'm not dismissing any of the others in any way, but I think George had a special kind of sort of ornery, interesting depth to him that came through um, in interesting ways. 
get back to the subject of the misogyny. You know, it's yes. often talked about, you know, the, the rapid and remarkable journey that John took from Run For Your Life in 1965 to Woman Is The Nigger Of The World seven years later. Are you totally convinced by it? I am absolutely convinced. And I, I'm very disappointed that in the current political climate that that song, people are afraid to present that song. But in fact, I, I do believe it. And um, I think that if anybody doubts his sincerity, uh, just watch that Dick Cavett show where they performed it. You could, and that was 72, like you could see he, she really raised his consciousness. I mean, he came to, I, I think that he, you know, a couple of things. First of all, he recognized that he was a work in progress. Yeah. Okay, so there's that. Um, a lot of men, like, don't do, can't do that. Um, and that he, he was willing to learn from her. And he, you know, nobody, of course, can fully escape their socialization and where they came from and all that. But he was working on it. And, you know, basically what it comes down to is, like, she convinced him that for half of the human race to be oppressed and not allowed to reach their full potential is just a stupid waste. And and he's, you know, kind of, yeah, you're right, you know. And, and Well, he so bought I into d- it. And, and he, he was, uh, you know, there's, there's moments when he was away from Yoko where he... You know, because people could say, well, it's Yoko, blah, blah, blah. There's a great interview with French television in early 1975 where he talks at length about his belief in feminism and I can't Mm -hmm. wait till women are running countries because we need that, because we need their perspective. I mean, it's not like it was just Yoko's thumb on him. He No, Once he was alerted to it. He understood. See, this is the thing. Like, he's a smart guy, right? And, like, he understood that... Yeah, I mean, I, I get very, um, this is very heavy for me to talk about <laughs> because, I mean, I, I, I'm frustrated that you can't, like, people are so trigger offended mm. that that song is, is you know. Well, um, it's it's because of, well, we have to remember we're living a half a century later, essentially, because that, that interview I'm speaking about was 45 years ago. And, right. and things were in play. It's very tough to judge people. Uh, today, uh, that this is one of my hot button points is like it judging people by today's mores and standards that lived a half century ago or thirty years ago, whatever. You have to work with what you've got at the time, and people who aren't students of history don't understand that. Right. You, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. But I, th- I think that, I mean, today. Uh, well, when when uh, Brett Kavanaugh during the Kavanaugh hearings. Mm. Um, Bette Midler posted to Twitter, um, woman is a nigger of the world, and she got a lot of flack for it and had to ultimately had to take it down after apologizing. And, and I'm just thinking, what the hell? Like, what is wrong with these people? And, um, you know, if you watch that clip from Dick Cavett, yeah. where he reads the thing from Ron Dellums, who was the head of the Black Caucus at the time, and... You know, like it's just it's it's a it's beautiful, and I th- I think that one of the, I mean, there are many tragedies about what happened with John, but I think one of you know, as a from a political sort of point of view, and as somebody who you know grew up with all this stuff, I believe that had John Lennon lived, he would have been a really powerful voice for feminism. 
and to and he would have been speaking to his fan base, boomer men, who frankly really um, never got the memo about this, <laughs> for the most part. And I, it, it's really um, part of you know people say, oh well, the music will never get to hear. Oh well, but yes, okay. But the but in some sense, I don't know if I would say the greatest loss. Who could say? But I think that one of the great losses is that we lost a voice for feminism that could have been very effective. You have a record here that bears some explanation because there's a bit of uh, hassling yeah, going on as to whether or not it can be sung or not. Yeah, there's always uh, every other record I seem to have a hassle with. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, this is a song about the women's problem. It was written by Yoko and I, and the song is called Woman is the Nigger of the World. And obviously there was a few people that reacted strangely to it, but usually they were white and male. But that's a... Now, I'll tell you the story of how it came about. In 1969, I put it on the cover of the single so as it helps explain it a bit. Yoko did an interview with a woman about the woman's problem, and I didn't have anything to do with it. And then I noticed the cover, it was called Nova, it's an English woman's magazine like McCall's or something like that. And the first time I heard about it was I saw it on the cover of McCall's like that, and it sort of said, she, woman is the nigger of the world. Well, at the time, I was more of a chauvinist than I am now, and I must say, I was saying, well, come on, what about this and what about that? And I argued a lot, and then, as, as like everybody else, we talked more and more about it. In the last two years, it became more of a thing, and I had to, you know, find out about myself and my attitude to women. And this phrase of hers kept coming through my head, woman is the nigger of the world, woman is the nigger. So I said, come on, Yoko, look, this is it. You've said it here. I agree with you now. I think she is. She's the slave of the slaves. That's what Connolly said, the great Irishman. And so we sat down together and we wrote, uh, we tried to write together the whole story of, uh, as, as best we could in a three or four minute song. And it's called Woman is the Nigger of the World. And then uh, luckily for me, because a lot of uh, stations were saying, well, we're not going to play this because it says nigger and a white man shouldn't say it. Though all my black friends uh, feel I have quite a right to say it because they understand it. And then, strangely enough, the chairman of the Black Caucus, that great guy, Congressman Ron Dellums, Democrat California says here, he came out with this, which is fantastic. If you define niggers as someone whose lifestyle is defined by others, whose opportunities are defined by others, whose role in society is defined by others, then good news. You don't have to be black to be a nigger in this society. Most of the people in America are niggers. <laughs> I didn't say that. Oh, my goodness. We're never getting now. I think, I think the word nigger has, has changed. It, it does not have the same meaning as it used to. And I think he put it very succinctly there. And I really believe women have the worst. Whatever it is, whatever, however badly or poor people are, it's the woman that takes it when they get home from work. the nigger of the world Yes, you know Think about Woman is the nigger of the world Think about it Do something about it We make her paint her face and dance Be a slave and say that she don't love. If she's real, we 
always say she's trying to be a man While putting her down We pretend that she's above us
he took it on the chin, didn't he? You know, he he not only copped to hitting women, he also said, you know, he referred to himself as the pig. And at the end of his life, I think it was really poignant that, you know, this northern chauvinistic guy one time is writing songs like Woman and Grow Old With Me. Right. And even in Power to the People, yeah. he says, how do you treat your woman at yeah. home? I mean... He was very aware of, of these things and was, was moved by them. It's more than being aware, uh, Candy. It's also because, once again, we neutralize the power of what Lenin said at the time he said it. Because nobody, and I mean nobody in entertainment, was talking like John Lennon about those things in those days. Nobody. That's right. So, no, I agree. And yeah. so what... Uh, if you listen to a contempt contemporarily, listen to some of these old interviews, you kind of go, "Oh yeah, yeah," you know, you're kind of nodding your head along to these revolutionary concepts that John was talking about of, of equality, and and um, here we are a half century later, and we're still not there. I agree with you. Had John lived, uh, people would have been more enlightened in general, about probably a lot of things. We're talking about feminism and sexuality today because that's the theme of the show. But I think there were other things. You know, um, we did a, I did a show on John's birthday, you know, to raise money for the Regent Theater. And we had May Pang on and she was so adamant. The, the big message she wanted to get across was John would be saying, wear your mask, listen to the scientists, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, and right. you know, how much influence would that have had? I, I honestly think the Jatan would have killed him 20 years ago because he smoked those things well, so religiously. But his spirit, um, and uh, yeah, I think today, uh, here we are 40 years after John's death, honoring that spirit. And I think most of the sexually charged songs we've talked about were really John's stuff or, you know, some Paul. People have to pull back the lens, you know, when they're sort of going after him for the misogyny of some of the earlier songs, like Run For Your Life, or You Can't Do That. If you pull back the lens and see how much he was willing to change, um, and that's all anyone can ever do, right? You know, some of us are raised in a certain way with these prejudices. And the only thing you can ask of a human being is to change. But he owned it. No, the other thing you can ask is to own up. And what a lot of people today don't do is own up. And that's something Lenin never hesitated on. He said, yeah, I did this. I was a violent man who fought men and hit women, and I was wrong. Yeah. And this is the way, you know, and that, there's nobody who does that that I know in public life now. Right. There's nobody. The other thing he did in the interview where, um, with the BBC, he did, I think, on December 6th, where he talked about the writing credit for Imagine. Yeah. And how he realized, um, well, the time, the word they use at the time was what a chauvinist he was, that he didn't give Yoko right. a writing credit. So he really did, uh, I think his conversion or whatever you want, evolution, I guess is probably a better mm. way, you know, towards to a feminist consciousness was absolutely real. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. You, I mean, just the enthusiasm with which he's talking about it to Dick Cavett. You can see it's like, it's, it's like, he wanted to tell the world about it. He often did. I mean, when he discovered George was the same way, uh, when they discovered something they thought was worth sharing, they, they yes. would be very public about it. And, and it's so easy now. I spend more time in old news archives and old television shows than anybody I know. And when you see these 
statements in the context of their times, they're astounding. They are revolutionary because nobody else was talking like this, except maybe Gloria Steinem or somebody. But she didn't have the cachet. You know, she was marginalized at the time. Well, feminism at that time was still talked about as women's lib. I mean, it, it yeah. was it was ridiculed. It was not, you know. And, of course. and so I think yeah. that that he would have perhaps made a difference of some kind. Now, it's interesting about McCartney. I noticed I noticed this when Egypt Station came out, and I and the little bits he's been doing lately. Again, he does, with the exception of a sixty Minutes interview, McCartney does not talk to female journalists. Like everybody who interviews, like he he only talks mm, to men. No, I think I think that's just who gets the pecking order in within the news organizations. I'll well, tell you I why. think there are many many reasons for it, and I don't. I mean, you know, you could say, well, there are fewer women journalists, fewer women writing about. I mean, the same reason why there are so few female Beatle experts. I mean, I understand the histor- You know, there there are some historical reasons for this. That said, the fact remains that. He only talks to male interviewers who only asks the same kind of questions. Mm. And I think that if, uh, if he were interviewed by a prepared, knowledgeable, <laughs> I wonder who they could find. No, but seriously, like, he doesn't talk to female interviewers, and I think it's, I, it really annoys me. He, he did at a certain period. Um, one of my favorite actresses, kind of obscure in these days, but uh, there was a lady named Leslie Ash. Yeah. Um, and she played Steph in the Quadrophenia movie, causing me near cardiac arrest every time I watched the film because I just thought she was so marvelous. Um, he spoke quite frankly to her. There was other people. Um, I'm, God forgive me. The I can't remember the name of the lady that uh, killed herself. That was Bob Geldof's wife. Paula Yates. You, you, oh, Paula yeah. Yates. He spoke with her as well. I just think, you know, we, we get into a whole other subject, uh, Candy, about pecking orders and news organizations. John was up front with, I mean, you know, uh, the, some of the more in-depth early on kind of confessional interviews. Yeah. I think he was comfortable. It didn't really matter who was speaking to him about it, it, it man, man or woman. He just needed that to get out there. Whereas Paul, I think, was always more about what he was promoting. Yeah. Look for the forensic evidence. I mean, would, would Paul McCartney ever get Linda to get all her kit off and take a naked picture on a record where they're doing bird calls and farts in stereo? No. And, and, you know, that was John. John just was a unique person in the entire annals of rock and roll. Show me somebody who was as open about everything as John Lennon. Nobody. I don't care. You pick your genre. It could be jazz. could be classical. He, John was just something that comes along once. I mean, as much as I love, like I say, I love George. George is a very different incarnation of humanity. But John was unique in his doing stuff that nobody else would do and saying, fuck you if you can't understand it you know i don't care you know and that's what made him john this is why we love him you know you mentioning before about uh, old blues artists blues songs and i should sort of say that the context we're talking in here this whole show is about mainstream popular music right because on the fringes you had things you know like back in the 30s artists like lucille bogan listen some of her songs people you know like shave them dry from 1935 I mean, we're talking just a completely overt and crude sexual lyrics. But theoretically, white people weren't listening to that and weren't certainly weren't hearing it on the radio. 
I mean, post Beatles again, you know, we're talking about the content that the lyrics, uh, we got mother, you know, with John saying, you had me, I never had you. Uh, which actually got that banned on BBC Radio. Oh, yeah. Have you heard John Lennon's audio diaries from 79, where he talks about having been in bed with his mum, with Julia? Yeah. There was like this kind of window of opportunity that he, he never took advantage of. And now, you know, in his late 30s, is in some ways curious and regretting it. So maybe there was something to that lyric in that song. Yeah. But then one that isn't subtle, right, is Hi, 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 Paul. So, Candy, overall, looking at the arc of the subject that we've been talking about and looking at it from a sociological perspective and a female perspective, 
What is your takeaway in terms of the Beatles' evolution, their treatment of the subject, and the impact that it had on society, if any? Well, I think, as we talked about, we saw that there was a more explicit sexuality as their lyrics developed, as they grew from you know, their early 20s into more mature men. Uh, I don't know. In terms of their impact, I would say it's very much a mixed bag. I mean, I think that um, the music, as much as it enriched our lives and enhanced our lives and just gave us wonderful things to think about and inspired us in so many ways, they were products of their time, you know, as we all are. And I, and I think that not only the Beatles, but all the music that followed in their wake, which was really what I consider to be a sort of a pop renaissance um, that was a, you know, a soundtrack to a cultural revolution. <laughs> you know, so looking at it in that sense, yeah. uh, again, a mixed bag. But a lot of it was you know, very much traditional male-female kind of relationships for the most part. The Beatles did, I believe, offer a different vision. Yeah. There was something very aspirational about it you know their songs were very positive there was mm. this very positive message when people say well what were the Beatles about what do we say we say that they were about peace and love and that's true and in the way that they talked about male female relationships or relationships in general yeah there's a really great book that I discovered called into the mystic the visionary and ecstatic roots of 1960s rock and roll. And the guy makes a point, the author is um, Christopher Hill, and he makes a point about the Beatles, that with the Beatles, love was a happy thing. Love was possible. And he described it as almost like a gospel kind of thing, that there was this, this positivity in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that overrides moments like you can't do that, or run for your life, you know, which were, you know, we always mentioned them as exceptions to the rule. And there was this kind of positive um, attitude and, and, and uh, very uplifting kind of the, the, the harmonies, the vocals. There was something about what they put out that was just really uplifting and positive. And so in terms of women and, and, you know, what they were saying about women. I mean, they, they presented relationships in a kind of aspir what I would call it a very aspirational way. In other words, it could be like this, right? And we should aspire to this. And this is why with yeah. Lennon, um, you know, as we talked about earlier, that, you know, we, we lost a voice for feminism, yeah. he might have been able to make some of these things more than aspirational. Yeah. You know, real egalitarian relationships, seeing people as full human beings outside of the roles that society forces them to play. And I think he might have been able to raise consciousness about these things. But I, th I think that as far as the Beatles and gender issues, I think you know, there's a lot more that can be said, of course. But, it, I mean, the, sh the short answer it was a very mixed bag. One, I can hardly express My mixed emotions and my thoughtlessness 
The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Woman is, I must say, a great favourite of mine. Oh, thank you. I like that one, although I'm sort of embarrassed because it's, you know, sort of sounds a bit like girl and a bit beatly and a bit, you know, but I do like it. Why, myself, does, that embar- why does that embarrass you? Because I'm still a bit feeling I'm supposed to be macho Butch Cassidy or something and tough Lennon with a leather jacket and swearing and all that, and I really am just as romantic as the next guy, you know, and always was. It's the sort of 80s version of girl. To me, you know, I call, I, like I referred to the other ones, Elvis Orbis, and this one I called the Beatle track all the time. I said, oh, the Beatle track, let's do the Beatle mm-hmm. track tonight. But to me, it was, it suddenly dawned on me about the woman thing. I was in Bermuda again, and it suddenly sort of hit me about what women represent to us, not as the sex object or the mother, but just their contribution. That's why you hear me muttering at the beginning for the other half of the sky, which is Chairman Rao's famous statement that it is the other half. You know, all this thing about man-woman, man-woman is a joke, you know. I mean, without each other, there ain't nothing, you know. Mm. So it was like this sort of, my God, you know. It was a different viewpoint of what I'd felt about women, and I can't express it better than I said in the song. Mm. And it's for Yoko, but it's to all women. <laughs> 